0: Hi, you're listening to the Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today for episode 200, Christian Decker from Blockstream rejoins me on the show today. and We've got a special one. It's a two-hour long in-depth explanation and discussion around Lightning. And we start off with some discussion around any prev out. So for those of you who don't know, this is a proposal in relation to a new type of public key for Tapscript transactions. And it's something that will work in relation to Lightning Networks L2 upgrade, which is something that uh, Christian will explain as part of this episode. We also talk about updates with MPP, multi-part payments on the Lightning Network. We talk about attacks in the Lightning Network and what are some of the mitigations against those. We talk about trampoline routing and also just some general discussion about how Bitcoin's Lightning Network is likely to grow out in the future. And we also touch on some privacy considerations also. So a really good episode for you guys. Now, a quick word for the sponsors. This show is Brought to you by Swan Bitcoin. If you're in the US or if you have friends in the US, make sure you send them to swanbitcoin.com. Swan allow you to auto stack Bitcoin and it's really, really simple. Step one, you auto fund USD from your bank account. Two, you auto stack the Bitcoin. And three, you withdraw to your cold storage. Swan does not charge withdrawal fees. They are the cheapest in the U.S. for this kind of service, and they want you to follow Bitcoin best practices. There's no altcoins, and they focus on education. So set and forget. Enjoy your life. Just Swan and chill. And you can go to swanbitcoin.com/levera and get $10 worth of Bitcoin dropped into your account when you start stacking with Swan. Next up is Unchained Capital, Bitcoin-native financial services. Are you looking out for your Bitcoin security? Have you considered multi-signature? Well, Unchained Capital make it easy for you because their products and services are built based on multi-signature. You can create a two of three multi-signature vault. You can use a Trezor or a Ledger, and cold card is coming soon, and you can create a vault on the Unchained Capital website, and you can separate those keys and give yourself a little bit more security as we are potentially entering into a bull run. If you're a little bit unsure on how to do this, Unchained are also offering a Vault Concierge onboarding package where they can actually help guide you through this process. So go to the website and you can find this on the Vaults page. Also, if you need a loan, if you need US dollars and you don't want to sell your Bitcoin, well, this is where you can put up some Bitcoin as collateral and it's never rehypothecated and you can potentially get a tax benefit there also. Don't forget, Unchained also contribute in terms of open source in the space, so they've got Caravan, an open source multi-signature coordinator. They've also got an awesome blog, so you can send your friends there just to learn a bit more about Bitcoin as well. Go and learn more at unchained-capital.com. Here's the interview with Christian. Christian, welcome back to the show.
1: Hey, Stefan. Thanks for having me.
0: Christian, I wanted to chat with you about a bunch of stuff that you've been doing, Uh, we've got a couple things that i was really interested to chat with you about any prev out mpp lightning attacks what what's you know the latest with lightning network um but uh, yeah let's start with a little bit around any prev out so i i see that yourself and aj towns just recently did an update and i think aj towns just did a an email to the mailing list saying okay here's the the update to any prevat do you want to just give us a little bit of background what motivated uh, this recent update
1: yeah so uh when i've read up the no input bip, it was basically just a bare bones proposal that did not uh, consider or take into consideration taproot at all uh simply because we didn't know as much about taproot as we do now and so what i did for no input bip 118 was basically to have a minimal working uh, solution that we could use to then implement L2 on top and a number of other proposals. But we didn't integrate it with Taproot simply because that wasn't at a stage where we could use it as a solid foundation yet. Since then, that has changed and, uh, and AJ went ahead and uh, did the dirty work of, of actually integrating the two proposals uh, with e- uh, with each other and uh so that's where any prevout and any prevout any script the two variants uh came out and uh, now it's it's very nicely integrated with the with the taproot system and once taproot goes live we can we can deploy any prevout uh directly without uh without a lot of uh, uh, adaption, uh that uh, that has to happen so um, that's definitely a good uh, good change, and uh, so any prevout uh, basically supersedes the no input proposal, which sort of was a bit of a misnomer. Um, and so, uh, using any prevout, we get the effects that uh, that we uh, that we want to have for L2 and some other uh, protocols, and have them nicely integrated with Taproot. And uh, can can propose them to uh, once once taproot is merged. And so let's
0: just talk a little bit about the background. Then, what's for the listeners who aren't familiar? What is L two? Why do we want that as opposed to the current
1: model of Lightning Network? So L two is a proposal that we came up with about uh, two years ago. Now, well, it's been two years already. And it basically is an alternative update mechanism for, uh, for Lightning. So in Lightning, we use what's called an update mechanism to basically go from one state to the next one and make sure that the old state is non-enforceable. So if we take an example and uh, we, you and I, Stefan, have a channel open with $10 on your side, the initial state basically reflects this $10 go to Stefan and zero go to Christian. Um, now, if we do any sort of transfer, uh, be it uh, some payment that we are forwarding over this channel or some uh, uh, or a direct payment that we want to have between the two of us, then um, we need to update this state. And uh, let's say you send me one, uh, $1, then the new state becomes $9 to Stefan and $1 to Christian. But we also need to make sure that the old state cannot be enforced anymore. So you couldn't go back and basically say, hey, I own 10 out of 10 Bitcoin uh, dollars on this contract, but uh, instead I need to have the option of saying, oh, wait, that's outdated, please use this version instead. And so what L2 does is it basically does exactly that. We create a transaction that reflects our current state. We have a a mechanism to activate that, uh, that state and we have a mechanism to override that state if, uh, if it turns out to be an old one instead of uh, the latest one. And, and for this to be be efficient, uh, what we basically do is we say, okay, the newest state can be attached to any of the old states. Uh, traditionally, this would uh, would, uh, would be done by basically taking the signature and creating, if there's n old states, n variants with n signatures one for each of the uh, of the binding to the old state, and with the with the any prevout or no input proposal, we basically make uh, and uh, give a, have the possibility of having one transaction that can be bound to any of the previous state without having to re-sign, and that's already the entire trick. We make uh, we make one transaction applicable to multiple old, uh, old states. By leaving out the exact location from uh, where we are spending, we leave out the UTXO reference that uh, uh, that we that we're spending when signing, and we can modify that later on without invalidating the signature.
0: Let me replay my understanding there. So let's say you and I set up the channel, and this is the you know the current model of Lightning. You and I set up a channel together, and what we're doing is we're putting a multi-signature output onto the blockchain, and that is a two of two. And then what we're doing is we're passing back and forward the new states the new to reflect uh, the, the new output. So let's say $10 to me and zero to you or $9 to me and $1 to you. And in the current model, if somebody tries to cheat the other party, so for example, let's say I'm a scammer and I try to cheat you and I try to publish uh, a Bitcoin transaction to the blockchain that I have my, like the pre-signed commitment transaction that closes that channel uh, then the idea is your lightning node is going to be watching the chain and seeing oh look Stefan's trying to cheat me let me now do my penalty close transaction and that would then in the current model put all the ten dollars into your side right
1: Exactly. So um, you basically have for any uh, for any of my wrong actions, you have a custom tailored reaction to that that basically punishes me, and steals all of the funds, or well, it, it penalizes me by crediting you with all the funds, right? And uh, that's that's already the exact issue that that we're facing is that. These reactions have to be custom tailored to each and every possible misbehavior that I could do, right? And so your your set of retaliatory transactions basically grows with every time that we perform a state change. So uh, we might have had one million states uh, since uh, since the beginning, and for each of these one million, you have to have a tailored reaction that you can replay if I end up publishing transaction 993, for example. Um, And this is is one of the the core innovations that L2 brings to the table is that you you no longer have this custom tailored transaction to each of the previous states. Instead, you can can tailor it on the fly to, uh, to match whatever I just did. And so you uh, you do not have to keep an ever-growing set of retaliation transactions in your uh, in your database or backed up somewhere or um, at uh, ready. In terms of benefits that I
0: can think of, then so it, it it sort of softens the penalty model. So instead of one party cheating the other and then losing everything, now it's more like if somebody publishes a wrong transaction or an old state, then the other party just publishes the most up to date one that they have and as I understand from you the other benefit here is like a scaling one that you know it might be easier for someone to now host watchtowers because it's less uh, computationally or less maybe it's like less hard drive usage right
1: exactly so uh, it's it's definitely the case that uh, it becomes less data intensive in the sense that the watchtower or even you yourself do not have to uh, have to manage an ever-growing set of uh, of transactions Instead, all you do need to do is to have the latest uh, transaction in uh, in your back pocket, and then uh, and then you can react to whatever happens uh, on chain. And that's true for you as well as as for for watchtowers. And watchtowers therefore become really cheap because they basically just have to manage these two hundred bytes of, of of information. And when you give them a new, uh, when you hand them a new transaction, a new reaction. Um, they basically just throw out the old one and uh, uh, and keep the new one. Um, <clears throat> the other effect that that uh, that you mentioned is that we basically now override the old state instead of uh, uh, instead of using the old state, but then penalizing. And that has a really nice effect that what we what we basically do in the end is enforcing a state that uh, that we agreed upon instead of enforcing. Oh, this this just went horribly wrong, and now I have to grab all of the money. So it it changes a bit the semantics of uh, of what we do. Towards we we can only update the old state and not uh, and not force a, an issue on the uh, on on the remote end and, and then steal money from them. And That's really important when it comes to, for example, backups. Um, with uh, with Lightning as it is today, backups are. Almost impossible to do because the uh, because whenever you restore, you cannot be sure that it's really the latest state, and therefore, if you when you publish it, that it's not going to be seen as a cheating attempt. Uh, whereas with L two, basically, you can take any old state, publish it, and the worst that can happen is that somebody else comes along and say, "Hey, uh, this is not the latest state. There's a newer one. Here it is." And so you what, uh, you you might uh, you might not get your desired state. Let's say you want to take all ten out of ten dollars from the channel, but you will still get the nine out of ten that that you owed in the uh, that you owned in the latest state, because all I can do is override your uh, your ten go to Stefan with my nine go to Stefan and one go to Christian, and so we've we've reduced the uh, the penalty for uh for misbehavior in the network uh from from basically being devastating um, and losing all of the funds uh to a more reasonable uh level where uh, where we can say okay uh at least I agreed to to the state and it's going to be a newer state that uh, um, that uh, I agreed upon right and so I, I often compare it to the difference between lightning penalty being the death by beheading, whereas the uh, um, whereas L two is a death by a thousand paper cuts, uh, because the uh, the cost of misbehaving is uh, is much reduced, allowing us to get to have working backups and have a lot of uh, of uh, nice properties that uh, uh, that we can pr- uh, probably talk about later such as uh, true multi-party channels with any number of participants. Um, and that's that's all due to the fact that we no longer insist on penalizing the misbehaving party. We now instead correct the, uh, the effects that the misbehaving party wanted
0: to trigger. Fantastic. And so from your paper, the L2 paper, it mentions this idea, it says, you know, it introduces the idea of state numbers, an on-chain and forcible variant of sequence numbers. So can you just talk to us a little bit about why, so as I understand you, it's like there's a ratchet effect that once you move up to that new state, that's now the new one. And so it just, it means that at least one of our nodes has the ability to enforce the correct latest state. So could you just explain a little bit around that state numbers idea?
1: Yes, so um, the state numbers idea is actually connecting back to the very first iteration of Bitcoin like we had it with the n-sequence proposal that Satoshi himself added. And sequence basically meant that you could have multiple versions of transactions and miners were supposed to, inf- uh, to pick the one with the highest sequence number and, and confirm that, basically replacing any previous transaction that had a lower sequence number. Um, that had that had a couple of issues, namely that there is no way to force miners to actually do this. You can you can always you can always bribe a miner to use a version of a transaction that suits you better, um, or they might they might be actively trying to defraud you. Um, so there is no really good way of of enforcing end sequence numbers. On the other hand, what we do with the, uh, with the state numbers is that we do not give the miners the freedom to choose which transaction to, to confirm. What we do is we basically say, okay, we have a transaction 100 and this transaction 100 can be attached to any previous transaction that could be confirmed or could, be, could still be unconfirmed that has a state number lower than 100. And that's how in L2 we basically say, okay, this latest state represented by this transaction with a state number of 100 uh, can be attached to any of the previous transaction and override their uh, their effect by um, by basically ratcheting forward the state. So um, let's say you have uh, you have published state 1990. Uh, that means that anything with state number 91, 92, 93, and so on can be attached to your transaction. Now your transaction might confirm, but the effects that you want are in the settlement part of the transaction. And so if I can if I can come in and attach a new version of, uh, of that state, a new uh, update transaction to your published transaction, then I can basically detach the settlement part of the uh, uh, of the transaction from this ratcheting forward and I have just uh, disabled your attempted settlement by ratcheting forward and initiating the settlement for state 100 and then you could come uh, come along and say okay sorry I didn't uh, I, I forgot about state 100 here's where uh, state 110. So we can even while closing the channel, we can still continue making updates to the L2 channel um, using these, uh, these state numbers. And these state numbers are, are really nothing else than making an explicit uh, uh, way of, of saying, okay, this number 100 overrides whatever came before it. Whereas with LN penalty, the only association you have between the individual transactions and so on uh, is by following the uh, is spent by relationship. Basically, you have, you have a set of transactions that can be, uh, can be published together, uh, but there is no sense of, uh, of transitive overriding of, uh, of effects.
0: I see. Uh, And I guess maybe just a naive question that a listener might be thinking Well, Christian, what if I tried to set my state number higher than
1: yours? What's stopping me from doing that? You can certainly try. uh, But since these are, uh, we are still talking about uh, uh, two of two multisig outputs, uh, I would have to countersign that. Um, And so I might, I might, might as well sign it, but then I will make sure that if we later on come to a new agreement on what the latest state should be, that that state number must be higher than than whatever I signed before, so that this later state can then override your spuriously numbered uh, state. And in fact, that's something that we propose in the paper, to hide the number of updates that were performed on a channel, not to go incrementing one by one, but sort of have a uh, have a, a different sized increment steps so that when we settle on chain, we don't tell the rest of the world, hey, by the way, we just had 93 updates. <laughs> of course,
0: Um, And also, just from watching some of the Bitcoin dev mailing list discussion, I saw some discussion around this idea of whether the Lightning node should also be looking into what's going on in the mempools of, you know, Bitcoin versus only looking for the transactions that actually get confirmed into the chain. Can you just comment a little bit on how you're thinking about the security model? As I understand, you're thinking of it more like, no, we're just looking only at what's happening on the chain and the mempool watching is a nice to have.
1: Yes. um, So with, with all of these protocols, we can usually Uh, replay them uh, only on on chain and we don't need to look at at the mempool Um, and that's that's true for l2 as it is true for for a lightning penalty Um, but recently we had a lengthy discussion about a uh, an issue that uh, that is dubbed rbf pinning attack um, which sort of makes this a bit harder and uh the, uh, the attack is a bit involved, but it basically come, uh, boils down to the attacker placing a uh, placeholder holder transaction in the mempool of the peers, making sure that that transaction does not confirm, but being in the mempool, that transaction can re- uh, re- then result in rejections for future transactions. And so that, uh, that comes into play when, when we are uh, talking about HTLCs, which span multiple channels. And so we can have effects where the downstream channel is uh, still locked um, because the attacker placed a, uh, placed a placeholder transaction in the mempool. And we are frantically trying to react to this channel now being timed out, uh, the, this HTLC being timed out, but our transaction not making it into the mempool because it's being rejected by this poisoned transaction there, um, and the if if that happens on a single channel that's okay because eventually we will be able to to resolve that, and then HTLC is not a huge amount usually. Um, where this becomes a problem is if we have if we were forwarding that payment. And we have a matching upstream HTLC that now also needs to time out with or or have a success. And that depends on the downstream HTLC, which we don't get to see. So it might happen that the upstream timeout gets timed out. So basically, our upstream node told us, here's $1. Uh, I promise to give it to you if you can show me this uh, this uh, payment pre emi- uh, the, the uh um, hash pre-image in a reasonable amount of time, and you uh, turned around and uh, forwarded that that, uh, uh, that promise and said, "Hey, your attacker, here's one dollar. You can have it if you if you give me the secret in time." Now the down uh, the downstream attacker doesn't tell you in time, so you want to uh, you you will be okay with the upstream one timing out. Um, but turns out the downstream one can succeed, so you're out of pocket in the end of the forwarded amount, and that that is that is a really a difficult problem to solve without looking at the mempool, because the uh, because the mempool basically is the only indication that this attack is going on, and therefore that uh, that we should we should be more aggressive in in reacting to the uh, this attack being performed um but most lightning nodes do not actually look at the mempool currently and so the there is two proposals uh that that we're trying to do one is to make the mempool logic a bit less uh, unpredictable namely that uh, uh, that we can still make progress with our reaction even though there is this poison transaction that is something that we're trying to to Get the uh, Bitcoin core developers interested in, and on the other side, we uh, we are looking into mechanisms to actually look at the mempool, see what is happening then, uh, and and then start alerting nodes that hey, you might you might be under attack. Uh, please take precautions and um, uh, and react accordingly.
0: Great, um, and also wanted to chat a little bit about the sig hash flags uh, because I think obviously. Any prevout and any anyscript any script are some new sig hash flags. So maybe if you could take us through just some of the basics around what is a sig hash flag.
1: Yes, so um, sig hash flag is sometimes uh, confused with, with an opcode. It is basically just a modifier of an existing opcode, namely opcheck sig and opcheck sig verify and opcheck multi-sig and object multisig verify uh, variants that basically instructs the uh, the check-sig uh, operation to um, which part of the transaction should be signed um, a- a- and which one should not be signed. So in particular, uh, what we do with SIGcache, any, uh, any prevout is we, um, when computing the signature and verifying the signature we do not include the previous outputs in the uh, in the signature itself so these can be uh, modified if um, if desired without invalidating the signature Um, basically it is like uh, um, uh, like a kid having a bad grade at, uh, at school coming home and uh, needing a signature from the parents and what he does is he covers a part of the of the permission slip so to speak um, and the parent still signs it and uh, and only then uncovers the uh, the covered part but this changing what uh, what was signed does not invalidate the signature itself Now that's sort of a nefarious uh, um, example but it can be really useful so, uh, if, if you ever have, uh, if you've ever given out a Blanco check for example uh, where you could then fill in the amount at a later point in time or the, uh, fill out the recipient at a later point in time that's that's a very useful tool for example. And where for l2 what we use it for is basically we use the reaction transaction to uh, to something that our counterparty has done and adapt it in such a way that it can cleanly attach to, what your counterparty has done, basically. Um, I see, yeah. And there are some uh, uh, already existing siccash flags. Um, so so for example, the, the default one is Sighash all, which covers basically the entirety of the transaction without the input scripts. Um, and uh, there's, there's Sighash single, which has been used in a couple of places, um, which basically signs the input uh, and the matching output, but there can be other transac- uh, other inputs and outputs as well that are not covered by the signature. So you can you can basically amend a transaction and add uh, later on uh, new funds to that transaction and new recipients to that transaction. And we use that, for example, to attach fees to transactions in l2. Um, so fees in L2 are not intrinsic to uh, to the uh, to the update mechanism itself. They're attached like a sidecar, basically, um, which also removes the need for us to negotiate fees, for example, between the endpoints. Uh, something that has, in the beginning of Lightning, has caused a lot of channels to die is simply disagreement on fees. Um, and there is also Sikash None, which basically signs nothing. Uh, it signs the overall structure of, of the transaction, uh, but it doesn't it doesn't restrict which inputs can be used, it doesn't restrict which outputs can be used. And it basically just if if you get one of these transactions, you can basically rewrite it at will, basically sending yourself all the money that would have been transferred by it. I
0: see. Um, so maybe just talking through the sig hash part. I guess for most users, without knowing, when they're just doing standard single signature spending with their, you know, on their phone wallet or whatever, they're probably using sig hash all, and that's what their wallet is using in the background for them. Um, and I suppose uh, if the listener wants to sort of see how this might work, they could obviously pull up a block explorer and see on a transaction you can see the different inputs and outputs. And what we're talking about here is what you are. If I understand you correctly, it's what we are committing to when we sign. And so, could you maybe just spell out a little bit about what what it means when you're committing to a certain, like when that's what what that signature is committing to?
1: Yes. So um, what what it basically does is it takes the transaction, it passes passes it through a hash function, and then the hash is basically is signed. Uh, the effect that that we have by it is that if we um, if anything in the transaction itself is modified, which was also part of the hash itself, then uh, then the signature is no longer valid. So it it basically means that I I I both authorize this uh, this transaction, um, and I authorize it only in this. Form that I'm currently signing, there can be no modification afterwards, or else the signature will will change will uh, would have to change in order to remain valid. And so, if we if with the SIGHASH flags we remove something from the uh, from the uh, sig- uh, from from the commitment to the transaction, then we can uh, then we give outsiders or ourselves the the ability to modify without having to re-sign basically right and so
0: that's why for the typical user just doing single signature their wallet is just going to use sig hash all but where they are doing some sort of collaborative transaction or there's some kind of special construction with it that's where we're using some of these other sig hash flags and then uh, bringing it back to why why we're using all this l2 and any prevout the idea is that this any prevout sig hash flags Will allow us to rebind to the prior update, correct? Exactly. Yes. All right. And so, could we just talk a little bit about um, so any prevout and then any prevout any script? So, what's the difference there?
1: Um, so, what we what we do with SICash any prevout is basically no longer explicitly saying, "Hey, by the way, I'm spending that those funds over there." Instead, what we say is. Uh, we have to uh the the output script and the input script have to match other than that we can mix uh, mix these transactions however however we want and so instead of having an explicit binding of saying hey uh, my transaction 100 now connects to transaction 99 and then the the scripts have to match and the scripts i mean uh uh, basically the output script would uh, would specify uh, the spender has to sign with public key x, and the input script ha- would contain a signature by uh, by public key x. Um, uh, so instead of binding by both the explicit reference and the scripts, we now bind solely by uh, by these scripts. And so that uh, that means that um, as long as the output says I need uh, I need uh, the, the spender has to sign with public key X, and the input of the uh, of the other transaction that is being bound to it uh, has a valid signature for public key X in it. Then we can attach these two. Now, um, what uh, what the difference between any prevout and any prevout any script is is basically whether we include the output script. In the uh, in the hash of uh, of the spending transaction or not, um, and for um, for the any prevout, we still commit to what script we are spending. So we basically take a copy of this uh, of the scripts uh, saying that this transaction the the spending transaction needs to be signed by public key X. We move that into the spending transaction and then include it into the, uh, into the uh, signature computation so that if the output script is modified, we cannot bind to it. Whereas the anyprevout any script says, okay, we don't take a copy of the output script into the input of the spending transaction, but instead we have a blank script. And so uh, we can bind it to any any. Uh, any uh, output whose uh, output script matches our input script, so it's a bit more freedom, but uh, but it is also something that we need for L two to work, because the output script of the um, of the uh, of the transaction we're binding to includes the state number, and that obvi- uh, obviously changes from each state to state, but we still want to have the freedom of taking a later state and attaching it to any of the previous states. So for L two, we'd uh, we'd have to use any prevout any script, and there are a couple of use cases where any prevout is suitable uh, on its own. So for example, if we have any sort of uh, transaction malleability, um, uh, and and we still want to take a transaction that connects to a pre, uh, to a potentially malleable transaction, then we can use sick hash any prevout. Such that if the transaction gets malleated in the public network while it is before it is being confirmed, we can still connect to it uh, using the connection between uh, the output script and the input script and the commitment of the uh, of the output script in the spending transaction.
0: Yeah, um, and, and you just mentioning uh, you were mentioning malleation there. So could you just outline
1: what is malleation of a transaction there? Oh, malleation is the uh, bane of all off-chain protocols, basically. Um, the uh, malleation is something that uh, that we've known about for, well, over seven years now, even longer than that. And if you remember, the Mt. Gox hack was for some time attributed to malleability, where, where they basically said, our transactions were malleated. We didn't recognize them anymore, so we paid out multiple times. Um, so uh, what, uh, what basically happens is that I create a transaction and this transaction includes a num- uh, uh, some information that is covered by the signature um, and can therefore not, not be changed, but it also includes some information that it cannot possibly be covered by the signature. For example, the signature itself, um, because we have in the input script of a transaction we need to have the the signatures. We cannot include the signatures in the signature itself. Otherwise, we'd have the circular argument, right? And so, while signing, the input scripts are set to blank um, and not committed to. And that means that if we then publish this transaction, we there are places in the transaction that can be modified without invalidating the the, the signature any uh, anymore. Um, and, uh, some parts of this include, for example, push operations, uh, for example, normalizations of, uh, of signatures themselves. So we can, we can add prefixes to stuff. We can add, uh, we can add dummy operations to the input script, therefore change how this, uh, how the transaction looks just slightly, but, uh, not invalidating the signature itself. So, um. The transaction now looks different and is getting confirmed in this different form, but we might have dependent transaction that we're referring to the old form by its hash, by its unchanged form, and so now this uh, this follow up transaction that you, uh, that was referencing the unmodified transaction can no longer be used to uh, uh, to spend those funds because well the miner will just see this new transaction go look for the old. Uh, for the output that it is spending, this output doesn't exist because it looks ever so slightly differently now because the hash changed, and so it will just say, "Okay, I don't know where you're getting that money from. Uh, go away. I'm, I'm throwing away that transaction, and it will not get uh, get confirmed." Whereas with Sighash any prevout we can uh, we can counter this by basically having the Transaction in the wider network be modified, be confirmed in this modified state, and then the uh, the sender of the uh, of the follow up transaction can just say, "Okay, um, I see that there has been a modification to the transaction that I'm trying to spend from. Um, let me adjust my existing transaction by changing the reference inside of the input to." Now this new alias that, that everybody else knows the old transaction, uh, uh, about. And now we can publish this transaction. We did not have to re-sign the, uh, the transaction. We did not have to modify the signature. All we had to do was basically take the reference and update it to actually point to the real confirmed transaction. And so that, that makes off-chain protocols a lot easier because, um, while Having a single signer resign a transaction might be easy to do. If we are talking about multi sig transactions where multiple of us have to uh, sign off on any change, that might not be so easy to implement. And so, any Prevout gives us this freedom of reacting to, uh, to stuff that is uh, that happens on chain or in the network um, without having to go around and convince everybody hey, please sign this updated version of this transaction because somebody did something in the network. I see. Yeah. So uh, I guess
0: if I understood you correctly, it's sort of like the way L2 has been constructed, it's that you're defending against that risk uh, and then you're trying to obviously use this new functionality of being able to rebind, you know, dynamically. Um, And I guess I just want to confirm, so for listeners who are concerned about, oh, okay, maybe there's a risk, I don't want to, this is all opt-in, right? So it's only if you want to use Lightning in the L2 model, that then let's say you and I have this special type of SIG hash flag that we are having a special kind of output that we are doing the updates on our channel. Uh, but if somebody doesn't want to, they can just not use lightning, right? That's, that, it doesn't risk them, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's fully opt-in. Um, it is like, like we said before, it, it, it is a SIG hash flag. The, we do have a couple of, of SIG hash flags already, but no wallet that I'm aware of implements anything but Zcash all. And uh, so, if if you don't want to use Lightning or you don't want to use any of the off-chain protocols that are based on Sickcash, any prevout, um, simply don't don't use a wallet that can sign with them. Um, these are very specific escape hatches from the uh, from the existing functionality. That we that we need to implement more advanced uh, technologies on top of of the light, uh, of the bitcoin network but it's by no means something that suddenly everybody should start using just because it's a new new thing that that is out there and um, with if, if we're if we're careful not to not to even implement Sikash any prev out in uh, in everyday consumer wallets then this will have no effect whatsoever on uh, uh on the users that do not want to use these technologies. Um, so it's it's something that that has a very specific use case. Uh, it's very, very useful for those use cases, but by no means everybody needs to use it. And we're sort of we're, we're trying to uh, to add as many security features a, as possible. Um, so for example, if you sign with a Ccash flag that is not Cca all, you as the signing party basically are the only one that that is deciding whether to sign or not, uh, wh- whether to use the Sicash flag or not. Um, whereas um, whereas with the any uh, changes that were introduced, and AJ has done a lot of work on uh, on this, uh, he introduces a new uh, a new public key format that explicitly says, "Hey, I'm available for seckash any so even the one that is being spent from now has the ability to opt into uh, any prevout being used or not, and both have to match. Right, the public key that uh, that is being signed for uh, has to have opted in for any prevout, and the signing party has to uh, has to opt in as well. Otherwise, we we will fall back to existing um, existing semantics, and
0: also. As I understand this BIP 118, there is a reliance on Taproot being activated first before any preve out. So, can you just talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Yes. So, um, obviously, we, we would have liked to to have any prev out as soon as possible. But one of the one of the eternal truths of software development is that uh, reviewer time is uh, is sort of scarce. And so, uh, we decided to, um, to not push too hard on any Prevout being included in taproot itself, um, uh, to keep, to keep taproot itself very minimal and, and sort of clean and easy to review and then uh, do, uh, and then try to do a, an, any Prevout, uh, soft fork at a future point in time at which. We will we will hopefully have again enough confidence in our ability to perform soft that we can actually we can actually do uh, roll out the, uh, any any out in a reasonable amount of time. Um, but for now, uh, it's more important for us to get uh, to get taproot through taproot is an incredible in, uh, uh, enabling technology for a number of changes, not just for for lightning um, or L two. But, but for a whole slew of, uh, of things um, that, uh, that, that are based on taproot. And so any delay in, in, in taproot would, would definitely not be in our interest. And we do see the, uh, the possibility of rolling out any prevout without too many stumbling stones at a second stage once we have seen taproot be, uh, be activated correctly. Awesome. Uh, and
0: also in the BIP 118 uh, document by AJ, there's a discussion here around signature replay. So, what's a signature replay, and how does how, how, how is that being uh, stopped?
1: Um, yes, uh, signature replay is one of the big concerns around uh, uh, around the activation of any pre and uh, it it basically consists of if uh, if I have if I have one transaction, it can be rebound to a large number of transactions. This uh, this doesn't um, this doesn't force me to uh, to use that transaction only in a specific context, but I could use it uh, in a different context itself. So, for example, if uh, if we were to construct a an off chain protocol that that was broken and couldn't work. Uh, we couldn't a- end up in a situation where uh, you have two outputs of the same value um, that opted in for any prevout and you have one transaction that spends one of them. Now, since the, uh, since both opted into any prevout and both have the identical script and both have the identical value, I could actually replay that transaction on both uh, outputs at, uh, at once. So basically, instead of the intended uh, the intended effect of uh, me giving you, let's say, five dollars in one output, you can have you can claim twice five dollars by play, uh, by replaying this transaction multiple times. Now, I'm I'm saying that this is this is true for uh, for off chain protocols that are not well developed and are broken um, because well-designed off-chain protocols will only ever have one transaction that you can bind to um, or this, this ra- you, you, cannot re- uh, you cannot have multiple outputs that all can be spent by the same any prevout transaction but it might still happen that somebody goes onto a blockchain explorer and looks up the address and then sends some money that happens to be the exact same value to that uh, to that output and so, what we're trying to do is uh, to find good ways to prevent exactly the scenario of, of somebody accidentally sending money, with uh, uh, accidentally sending uh, funds and creating an output that could potentially be claimed by uh, by uh, uh, Anyprevout any um by for example making these scripts unaddressable. So we create uh, we create a new format for um, uh, we, we, create a new script format, uh, for which there is no back 32 encoding for the, for the script. And suddenly you cannot go on, on to a blockchain Explorer and, and sort of manually interfere with an existing off chain protocol. Um, and so, so there are a number of, uh, of steps that we are trying to do to, uh, to reduce this accidental replayability that being said. In the uh, in in L two, for example, the ability to rebind a transaction to any of the previous matching ones is is exactly what to, what we were trying to achieve. So I would say it's it's a very very useful tool, but it, in the wrong hands, it can be dangerous. Uh, so don't go play with Ccash any private if you don't know what you do. <laughs> Fair
0: enough. Um, and so. To- what would be the pathway then to activating any prevout or what would what stage would it be in in terms of people being able to, say, review it or test it, that kind of thing?
1: I had a branch for Sikash no input, which uh, which was used by uh, Richard Myers, for example, to implement a prototype of L2 in Python that is working. Um, I'm not exactly sure if any prevout has any code that can be used just yet um i would i would have to definitely check uh check with aj or implement it myself um but it shouldn't be it shouldn't be too hard to implement given that it's uh it it's very at, at least the c cache, no input consisted of two if statements and a total of four lines changed so um i don't i don't sort of foresee any any huge technical challenges it's mostly just the discussion around making it safe, making it usable, and making it efficient that there are taking a bit longer, and uh, we we have that time as well, because we are waiting for uh, for Taproot to be activated in the meantime.
0: Um, yeah, so that sounds really cool. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention about any prevout, or shall we now start talking
1: about uh, MPP? <laughs> any prevout? Um... It's absolutely cool, and we've, we're finding so many use cases. Uh, it's it's really nice, and and I would I would so love to see it. Excellent.
0: Well, look, I think uh, we'll see uh, what what uh, everyone, what all the Bitcoin people are out there are thinking. Uh, but I think certainly the the benefits of having L two Lightning would be uh, pretty cool, um, and uh, it enables yeah, I guess like you were saying, the whole multi party channels, which uh, for listeners who haven't listened to our first episode. I think it's 57 off the top of my head. Uh, Go and have a listen to that. Um, I think there's a lot of possibilities there in terms of multi-party channels. And I suppose that also helps in terms of um, being able to get around that idea of there won't necessarily be enough UTXOs for every uh, person on earth. And that's why, you know, multi-party channels uh, might actually be a handy thing to have. All right, so... Let's have a look uh, into MPP then. So multi-part payments. So listeners also check out my earlier episode with Rusty on this one. Um, but uh, Christian, you had a great blog post uh, talking about MPP and how it's been implemented in C-Lightning. So do you want to just tell us a little bit about uh, the latest with that?
1: Yeah, so uh, we we implemented uh, multi-part payments uh, as part of our recent 090 release, um, which, uh, which we published. Just about ten days ago, I guess, um, and uh, multi-part payments is one of those features that has been long awaited because it enables us to 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 be much more uh, be much more uh, reliant and uh, be uh, adapt ourselves w- uh, way better to the to the network condition uh, that that we encounter, and it basically boils down to instead of me sending a payment and doing it all in one chunk we split the payment into multiple partial payments and send them on different paths to, to, from, from us to the destination and uh, thus making better use of the, uh, of the network liquidity um, allowing us to create bigger payments since we are no longer constrained by the capacity of individual channels. Instead, we can bundle multiple channels capacities and use the aggregate of all of these channels together. And uh, it also allows us to make the payments much more reliable uh, in that uh, the, uh, we, we send out parts, get back information and, uh, uh, and only retry the parts that, uh, the, that failed on our first attempt. Yeah. So there's a lot of benefits. Yeah. There's also a couple of benefits when it comes to privacy, but uh, we'll we'll probably talk about those a bit later as well. Sure. Sure. So I, I guess what are some of the main
0: constraints then uh, in terms of your node and how it works uh, if it wants to construct an MPP multi-part payment uh, onion uh, package? Is it?
1: Yeah. So so there's there's two parts of uh, of uh, of MPP. One is the recipient part. Uh, which is basically just: uh, I know I should receive ten dollars. I received only two. I'll just keep on waiting until I get the rest, um, holding on to the initial two that I already have for sure. Um, and so the recipient basically just just grabs money and waits for it to to be all there before then then uh, claiming the the full amount. Um, and on the, uh, on the sender side, what we do is basically we split the payment uh, into multiple parts. For each of these pay, uh, partial payments, we compute a route from us to the destination. For each of these, we then go ahead and compute a routing onion. So each individual part has its own routing onion, has its own path, has its own fate, so to speak. And uh, then we initially uh, we we send out the uh, the uh, partial payment with its onion on uh, on its merry way until we either get to the destination, at which point the destination will collect the uh, the promise of incoming funds, and if uh, if it has all of the funds that, that were promised uh, available, it will release uh, the the payment hash uh, the payment preimage, thus locking in atomically all of the all of the partial payments, or we get back an error saying, "Oh, this channel down the road doesn't have enough capacity. Uh, please try again." And at which point we then take uh, we then update our view of the network. Uh, we compute a new route for this payment, and uh, we we try again. And if uh, if we cannot find a new route for the amount that we have, we split it in half, and now we have two parts that we try to, to send independently from each other. Um, and so the sender side is pretty much in control of how big do we make these parts? Uh, how do we schedule them? How do we route them? How do we, uh, how do we detect whether we have a, a fatal error that, that we cannot recover from? Or when do we detect that this part is okay, but this part is about to be retried? And so the sender part is, is where all of the logic is, basically. The recipient just waits for incoming pieces and, and then at some point decides, okay, I have enough, I'll claim all of them. And the sender side required us to re-engineer uh, quite a lot of, uh, of our payment flow, um, but that also enabled us to build a couple of, of other improvements like the key send support, for example, which we so far only had a Python plugin for, but now have a c uh, C plugin for as well
0: right and so you were talking through the essentially the two different processes you've got the pre-split and then you mentioned the adaptive splitting so i guess that's the once you've tried it one time and it failed now you can take that knowledge and try a slightly different uh split or a slightly different route and then it will then create the new payment and try to send that
1: exactly so so the adaptive splitting is exactly the part that uh that we mentioned before is basically we try once and then depending on what comes back, we decide, okay, do we, do we retry? Do we split? Do we, uh, what What do we do now? Is, is this something that we can still retry and have a chance of completing or do we give up basically? Yeah. And so does it impact, I guess, when you're, when you are
0: trying, so let's say you've, you've you know, you're, you've installed C Lightning and you're trying to do a payment and then, does, so I guess in the background, really what's going on is your node has its own little graph of the network, and it's trying to figure out, okay, here's where the channels are that I know about, and here's what I know of the capacity, and does it then have better information and therefore each successive tries a little bit better? Or how does that work?
1: Exactly. So uh, initially what we have in, in the network is basically we see channels uh, as uh, as total capacities, right? If the two of us opened a ten-dollar channel, then somebody else would see it as ten dollars, um, and they would they would potentially try to send eight dollars through this channel. Uh, now, depending on how the ownership of those ten dollars is, um, this might be possible or not. So, for example, if we if we each own five, there's no way for us to send eight dollars through this channel, right? So we will report an error back to the sender and the sender will then know, aha, eight was more than the capacity. So I will I will remember that the, uh, this uh, this upper limit on, on the capacity, it might even be lower, but we know that we cannot, for example, send nine Bitcoins through that channel. And so it will, as we learn more and more about the network, our, uh, our information will be more and more precise and we will be uh, able to make better predictions as to which channels are usable and which channels aren't uh, for uh, for a given payment of a given size, basically. And so there is no point in us retrying this $8 payment through our well-balanced channel again, because that cannot happen. But if we split in two and now have two 4 uh, uh four dollar parts then one of them might actually go through our channels and we knowing uh, knowing that we have five and five it will actually go through and now the sender is left with a much easier cho- uh, task of finding a second four dollar uh, channel um four dollar dollar path from himself to the destination rather than having this one big chunk of uh, of eight all at once. And also from the blog
0: post, you touch on this idea about, so basically the way the fees work is there's a base fee and then there's typically a sort of like a a percentage fee. Yeah. And so if you split your MPP up into so many, like a hundred different pieces, you're just going to end up paying massive amount of base fee across all of those hundred pieces. So there's kind of like a, you'll see Lightning Node has to make a decision on how many pieces to split into.
1: Exactly. So we we need basically to have a lower value after which we basically say, uh, from now on, it's unlikely that we're going to find any path because the payment is so small in size that it will it it will basically be dominated by the base fee itself. And this is this is something that we've encountered quite early on already when uh, um, when the first game started popping up on on the Lightning Network. For example, Satoshi's Place if you wanted to uh, to draw a uh, to color in one pixel on on satoshi's place you'd end up paying one millisatoshi but the base fee would al- to get there would already be like one satoshi and so you you'd basically be paying uh 100,000 percent fee for uh, for your one (laughs) millisatoshi transfer which is Uh. (laughs) absolutely ludicrous and and so so we added we added an exception for really tiny uh transact uh uh, transfers that we call signaling transfers because their intent is not really to pay somebody it's more to signal activity and uh uh, and so so in in those cases we allow you to have a rather large fee up front. But that is not applicable to MPP payments because if we were to basically give them a fee budget of five satoshis each, then these would all accumulate across all of the different parts and we'd end up with a huge fee. Um, And so we we decided to basically give up if a payment is... uh, is below 100 satoshis in size, and well, not give up, but not split any further, because at that size, the the base fee uh, would would dominate the uh, the overall cost of the tra- uh, transfers. And so, what what we did there was basically to take the network graph and compute all end-to-end uh, pa- uh, paths that are possible, all pairs shortest paths. And compute what the base fee for these paths would be, and um, if I'm not mistaken, we have a single digit percent uh, uh, of uh, uh, of payments that may still go through, uh, even though they uh, they are um, they are below 100 satoshis in size, um, and so we we felt we felt uh, that uh, that aborting at something that is smaller than, than 100, mil, uh, 100 satoshis is uh, is safe. We will still retry different routes, but we will not split any further because that would basically double the cost in base fees at each splitting. Yeah, and I mean, I
0: guess really in practice, most people are opening channels much, much larger than that. So 100 sats is really like trivial, right? Like to be able to move that through. And at current prices, we're, we're talking like six or seven cents or something like that, so...
1: Yes. Uh, so, so the the, um, the speaking of speaking of channels and, and the expected uh, size that we uh, of a payment that we can actually uh, send through, um, that brings me back to our other uh, payment modifier, the pre-split modifier, um, which basically instead of having this adaptive mechanism where we try and then learn something and then we uh, then we retry with this new information incorporated we decided to uh, to do something a bit more clever and say um, wait why do we even try these really large payments in the first place when we know perfectly well that most of them will not will not succeed at first and so what uh, what i did was basically i took i took my lightning node and tried to send payments of various sizes to different endpoints by probing them and um, I uh unlike unlike my previous probes where I was interested in sort of seeing if I could reach those uh those nodes um I was more interested okay if I can reach them how how much capacity can, could I get uh, on this path how what what is the biggest payment that would still succeed getting it to uh getting it to the destination and so what uh, what we did is we measured the capacity of uh, of channels along the shortest path from me to uh, I think 2,000 destinations, and uh, and then we plotted it, and it was pretty clear that uh, that amounts below one uh, uh, below 10,000 satoshis, so approximately one dollar, um, have a really really good chance of uh, of succeeding uh, on the first try, and so. We we have these uh, we we measured the capacities in the network and found that payments with uh, with ten thousand satoshis in size can succeed relatively well. We have uh, we have an eighty three percent success rate for payments below um, one uh, below ten thousand. Uh, no, of exactly ten thousand satoshis. Smaller amounts will will have higher success rates, and so. By instead of trying these large chunks at first and then slowly moving towards, uh, towards the, these sizes anyway, we decided to split right at the beginning of the payment into roughly one size chunks and then, uh, and then send them on, uh, on, on their way. And these already have a way better chance of succeeding on the first try than this one huge chunk would have uh, uh, initially.
0: Gotcha. And just to clarify, that percentage you were mentioning, that is on the first try, correct? So it will then retry multiple times and the actual payment success rate is even higher than that for 10,000 sets,
1: correct? Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, I think this is an interesting idea as well, because it means it makes it easier for the retail, you know, hodler or retail lightning enthusiast to be able to set up his node and be a meaningful user of the network that they're not so reliant on routing through the the massive the well known massive nodes like you know the async node or the bit refill node or the zap node like it's easier for an individual because now you can split those payments across multiple channels right
1: absolutely so so what we what we do with uh, with uh, uh, with the pre uh, pre split and adaptive splitter. Um, we, we basically make better use of the, uh, of the network uh, resources that are available um, by, spreading, uh, by spreading a single payment over a larger number of, uh, of routes. We, uh, we give each of the nodes on those routes a tiny sliver of fees instead of going through the usual suspects and, and giving them all of the fees. So we make we make revenue from uh, from routing payments more predictable. Um, we learn more about the network topology. So while doing MPP uh, payments, we effectively probe the network and and uh, and find places that that are broken, and will cause them to uh, to to close channels that are effectively of no use anyway. Um, something that that we've seen with the with the probing uh, that we uh, we did for the Lightning Network conference um, was that if if we end up in a uh, somewhere where the channel is non-functional, we will ac- effectively close that channel and prune the uh, the network of these of these uh, of these relics basically that are of no use. And uh, we also speed up the end-to-end time basically by um, by doing all of this in parallel instead of sequentially, where uh, where each payment attempt would be uh, would be one uh, uh, attempted one by one. We massively parallelize that and, and learn about the network, and can uh, can uh, make better use of what we learned by speeding up the payment as well.
0: Yeah. And so also wanted to touch on the privacy element. So you you were touching on this a little bit earlier. So I guess there's probably two different ways you could think of this, right? Or at least there are multiple angles I can think of. So one angle might be, well, if somebody was trying to surveil the network, now they, and they wanted to try to understand what were the channel balances and try to ascertain or infer from the movement in the balances, who is paying who. Well, I guess now MPP kind of changes that game a little bit. It makes it harder for them. Uh, But then maybe on the downside, you might say, well, because we're still in the, uh, we haven't moved to this whole Schnorr payment points um, PTLC uh, idea, then it's still the same payment pre image. And so it's asking the same question, to use the phrasing Rusty used. And so in that sense, it might be, Theoretically, easier for a say a, survey, a hypothetical surveillance company to set up the spy lightning nodes and sort of see, oh, they're asking the same question, right? But what, what what are your thoughts there?
1: Um, that that's definitely true. Uh, there there is uh, there is definitely some some truth in the in the uh, in the statement that by basically distributing a payment over more ra- uh, routes and therefore in- involving more uh, uh, forwarding nodes we are basically telling a larger part of the network about a payment that we are performing. Um, and so that's, that's uh, probably worse than, than our current system where even if we were using a, uh, a big hub, that hub would see, okay, one payment and, and the rest of the network would be none the wiser. Um, on the, uh, on the plus side, however, the, one big hub uh, thing would basically give away the exact value that you're transferring to the big hub. Um, whereas if we if we pre-split to one dollar amounts and then do adaptive splitting, each of these nodes that are uh, each of the additional nodes that is now involved in this payment learns a tiny bit about the payment being performed, namely that there is a payment. But since we use this homogeneous split of Everything splits to one dollar. They know they, they don't really know much more than that. They they will learn that somebody is paying someba uh, someone, um, but they will not learn about the amount. They will not learn about the source and destination, and uh, and we are making traffic analysis a lot harder for uh, for ISP level attackers by by really increasing the chattiness of, of the network itself we make it much harder to for observers to associate or to collate individual observations into one uh, uh, one payment and so it's definitely it's it's definitely not the perfect solution to uh, to tell a wider part of the network about the payment being done but it is an incremental step towards uh, towards the Ultimate goal of making basically every payment indistinguishable from uh, from each other, uh, which we are getting with uh, with uh, Schnorr and uh, the point time lock contracts. And so once we are uh, once we have the pine, uh, point time lock contracts, we we truly have a a system where uh, we are sending back and forth um, payments that are not collatable by payment hash, as you correctly pointed out. Um, and, um, uh, and n- not even by amount because well, all of the payments have roughly the same amounts. It's the combination of, uh, of multiple of these partial payments that gives you the actual, uh, transferred amount. And so I think it it's not, it's not a clear loss or a clear win for privacy that we're now telling a larger part of the network. Um, but I do think that the uh, that the pre-splitter and the adaptive uh, splitting is uh, combined with with PTLC will be an absolute win, uh, no matter from from where you look at it. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, I think that's a very fair way to summarize. So, in terms of getting PTLC point time lock contracts, the the requirement for that would be the Schnorr Taproot soft fork, correct? Or is there anything else that's also required?
1: Um. Only the yeah uh, taproot and Schnorr is is the only one that that is required for PTLCs and then we uh, we we'd be I, I'm expecting the Lightning Network specification to be really quick at adapting it and and pushing it out to the network and actually making use of uh, of that uh, of that new found freedom that we have with PTLCs and Schnorr. That's great. And
0: I suppose the other component to think about and consider from a privacy perspective is just the on chain footprint aspect of Lightning. So, this is one thing where maybe some listeners might not be as familiar, but the, obviously, when you're doing Lightning, you still have to do the open and close of a channel. And so, currently, that's still sort of, well, kind of judging by, you know, you did some recent uh, work at the recent Lightning conference as well, showing some, you know, sort of chain. Uh, ability to sort of understand which ones of these were probably lightning channel opens, correct? Um, so I suppose that is another thing where Taproot might help also, um, particularly in the case of a collaborative uh, close, correct? So as I understand, Absolutely. in the once we have Taproot, then let's say you and I open the channel together and it's the happy path, the collaborative close, that channel close is indistinguishable from just a normal taproot key path spend correct
1: exactly yeah so so basically our opens will will always look exactly like uh, like somebody paying to a single sig um, the single sig under the covers happens to be a two of two multi-sig disguised as a single sig uh, through the uh, uh, signature aggregation uh, proposals that we have. And the closed transactions, if if they are collaborative closes, uh, they will also look like uh, like single six bends to then the the uh, amounts to the destinations that uh, um, that are owned by the by the endpoints. Um, but it it might be worth pointing out that non collaborative closes uh, will leak. Some information about the usage of uh, of of L two or uh, uh, or lightning penalty, um, simply because we then have to uh, to enter this disputed phase where uh, we reveal all of the internals of uh, of our agreement, namely how we intend to override or penalize the uh, the misbehaving party, and. Then we can we can still read out some of the information from a channel, um, and that's that's where uh, where I mentioned before that you might not want to increment state numbers one by one, for example. And uh, this is also the reason why uh, in LN penalty we hide, for example, the commitment number in the uh, in the um, in the, sequen- uh, in the lock time uh, field, uh, but encrypted, uh, because those informations might still eventually end up on, on the blockchain where they could be analyzed. But then again, we gossip about most of these uh, informations anyway, because we need to have a local view of the network uh, in order to route payments. I see. So it's kind
0: of a question of what parts do you really need to be private, I guess. Um, and one other part I just wanted to confirm, um, uh, my understanding is obviously not as good as yours, uh, but with the taproot uh, proposal, my understanding is you can either spend, so you'll have a special kind of taproot output. And the uh, the cool thing about the whole Schnorr signatures aspect is that you people can do more cryptography and manipulation on that and that's this idea of the tweaking and so my understanding there then is you either have the key path spend which is the indistinguishable indistinguishable spend right and that's like the collaborative close example um but then in the non-collaborative close as i understand that would be a script path spend and then as part of taproot the idea is that you are showing where like you have to have uh so I don't understand this as well, but there's a Merkle tree and then you have to expose which of the scripts that you want to spend and then you're showing, okay, here's the script I want to spend and here's the signatures uh, in relation to it. Is that right or where am I getting it wrong there?
1: Uh, no, that that's perfectly right. Um, uh, the, the the whole taproot idea comes out of this this whole discussion for Merkleized abstract syntax trees for for quite a while um, and it, it adds a couple of, of new features to it as well. So, Merkleized abstract syntax tree uh, where, uh, is, is basically a mechanism of us having multiple scripts um, that are then added to a Merkle tree and summed up until we get to the root, and then the root would be would be what we put into our output script, and then when we when we spend that output, we would basically say, okay, by the way, that Merkle tree corresponds to this script. And, uh, and here is the uh, the input that matches the script, proving that I have uh, I have permission to spend these coins. Um, and Taproot goes one step further and says, "Well, that Merkle tree root is sort of not really useful. Um, we could make that a, a public key and mix in the Merkle uh, Merkle root through this this tweaking mechanism." And uh, so that, that would then allow us to basically say, okay, either we pay spending, uh, uh, we, we uh, sign using the uh, root key uh, into which we tweak the, uh, the merkleized abstract syntax tree um, and that's the key path spend, or we can say, okay, um, I don't, I cannot sign with this, with this uh, pub key alone But I can show the script that corresponds to this this commitment and then for that I do have all of the information I need to sign off. So uh, in the normal case for a channel close we would basically use the root key to to sign off on the close transaction and in the disputed case we'd actually go and say okay here's here's the script that we agreed upon before Um, and now let's run through it and and uh, resolve this dispute that we that we have by settling on chain and and having the blockchain as a mediator for our dispute. Gotcha. Yeah, great. That's uh, yeah. There's a lot there
0: um, to take in. And also wanted to talk a little bit about some of the lightning attacks that are coming out in some of the articles. And uh, from my understanding, from chatting with you know, with yourself and some of the other lightning protocol developers, it seems to me like there's there's a bunch of these that have. Basically, they've been known for a little while, but some of them are now coming out as papers. Uh, So uh, an interesting recent one is called Flood and Loot, a a Systemic Attack on the Lightning Network. So uh, as I understand this, basically, it, it, it kind of requires this idea of establishing channels and then trying to send through a lot of HDLC payments and then... Maybe you can help me here. But they don't. Uh, then they kind of go non-responsive, and then they force the victim to try to go to chain. But the problem then is because they've done it with so many people or so many channels all at once, they wouldn't all be able to get confirmed, and then that's where the victim would lose some money. It, it, could you um, help help me there? <laughs> Did I explain
1: that correctly? Uh, it's 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 absolutely correct. Uh, so the um, the idea is basically to have an attacker. Um, send uh send to a second node he owns uh a massive amount of htlcs uh a massive amount of payments going through the victims and so what uh, what you end up doing there is uh, is basically um you you add a lot of htlcs to the channel of uh, of your victim and then uh you hold on to these payments on the uh on the recipient side of of the channel something that uh, uh, that that we've we've known for uh, quite some time and and we know that holding on to to HLC's is kind of dangerous um, so this attacker will hold on to HLC so long that uh, that the timeout approaches for the HLC so each HLC basically has two possible outcomes either it is successful and the preimage is shown to the uh, to the uh, to the uh, endpoint that added the HLC or we have a timeout and then um, then the uh, the funds revert back to the uh to the endpoint that added the HLC. Um, and this works because we uh, there there is no race between the success transaction and the timeout transaction. So um, if there is no success uh for uh for let's say, um, 10 hours, then we will trigger the timeout, and because we can be confident that the success will not come after the timeout came. Um, now, this flood and loot attack actually does exactly uh, exactly that by holding on to the HLC. It forces us to have a race between the timeout and the success transaction. The problem is that our closed transaction, having all of these HLCs attached is so huge that it will not confirm for quite some time and so they can uh, they can force the uh, uh, the close to take so long that the timeout has expired and we we are suddenly in a race between the successful transaction and the uh, and the timeout transaction and that's basically the 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 attack we have is to bloat somebody else's channel such that the confirmation of the closed transaction that is following is uh, uh, is is so long that we can actually get into a situation where we are no longer sure whether the timeout or the success transaction will succeed in the end.
0: Yeah, and so I guess there's a lot of moving parts here because you could say, okay, well, let's modify the csv window and let's make that longer or let's change the number of hdlcs and restrict that for each channel right so can you talk to us a little bit about some of those different moving parts here
1: so it's it's really hard to um to to say okay one number is better than than the other um, but one uh, one way of uh, of reducing the impact of this attack for example is to limit the number of hdlcs that we add to our own transaction and that will directly impact the uh, the size of our commitment transaction and therefore our chances of getting confirmed in a reasonable amount of time and therefore to avoid having this, this race condition between success and timeout. Um, the reason why I'm saying that uh, that there is no clear solution is that reducing the number of HTLCs that we add to our channels itself uh, reduces the utility of the network as a whole because once we have 10 htlcs added and we only allow 10 to be added at once then uh then that means that we can uh, that that we cannot forward the 11th payment for example um and if our attacker knows that uh that we have this uh this limit they could effectively run a, a dos attack against us by uh, by opening ten HTLCs, exhausting our budget for HTLCs, and therefore making our channel unusable for until they release some of the HTLCs, so that's that's an attack that we are aware of, and and that so far hasn't been caught up by academia, but I'm waiting for it, um, and uh, and so it all of these parameters are a trade off between uh, between various goals uh, that we want to have. And we don't currently have a, uh, a clean solution that has only upsides. And the same goes for CSVs. For example, if we, if we increase the CSV timeouts, then, um, this attack might be harder to enforce because we, uh, we can, uh, we can spread confirmation of transactions out a bit further. Um, on the downside, having large CSVs means that if we have a non-collaborative close for a channel, then the funds will return only once these CSV timeouts expires. And that then means that the funds are sure to come back to us, but might not be available for a couple of days before, before we can reuse them.
0: Yeah, so it's like an opportunity cost of your time because yeah. you you know want to be able to use that money now or whatever, right? So, but again, each of these are kind of they're, they're a trade-off, right? There's no kind of perfect answer on them, um, I, I guess. Uh, so one other question I had is just around, and this is just a general question: is when? So let's say somebody tried to jam your channels, right? How does it, how do HTLCs release? Is that just over time, or what's the function there?
1: Um, so so each HTLC um has a timeout at, at which we uh, the the endpoint that has added the hlc can basically use this timeout to uh, recover funds that uh, that are in this HTLC um, after this timeout expires and uh and so each HTLC that is added starts basically a new clock um that uh, that counts down until we can recover our funds, and if the if the success trend, uh, case happens before this timeout, then we're happy as well. Um, but uh, if this timeout is about to expire and we need to resolve this HTLC on chain, then we will have to uh, force this channel on chain before this timeout expires, a couple of blocks before. And uh, and then basically force our counterparty to either reveal this uh, the image or for us to to grab back our funds through the through the timeout. So we we then end up with a um, uh, with a channel closing slightly before the timeout and then an on-chain settlement of that HLC.
0: I see. So we could think of it like we set up our node, we set up the channels, and over time HLCs will route through, and then as that I think it's usually going to be a csv or maybe a cltv where over time just those htlcs will kind of expire out because the timer has run out on them and now you've got that capacity back again
1: yeah so in in these cases they're they're cltvs um, because we need absolute times for for htlcs um and that's simply because we uh we need to make sure that the downstream uh the the htlc that we forwarded settles before the upstream or the HLC where we received from um, uh, settles. So, so we need to have this time to basically extract the information from the downstream no uh, HLC, turn around and then p- uh, give it uh, forwarded to the, to the upstream HLC in order to to settle the upstream HLC correctly. And uh, and so that's where the the whole notion of CLTV delta comes in. Um, that. That is a parameter that each node sets for himself and says, "Hey, I am confident that I that if my downstream node settles in ten blocks, uh, I have enough time to turn around and inform my upstream node about this uh, this downstream settlement, uh, so that my channel can stay active."
0: Got it. And also wanted to touch on the commitment transaction size. So as you were saying, part of this attack. Uh, in the flood and loot example, depends on having a very large uh, commitment transaction. So I guess bringing it back to that model that let's say you and I set up the channel and uh, I guess what, what, what we're getting to there is if there's a lot of pending HTLCs, why does that make the transaction bigger? Is it that there's a lot more outputs there or I, what, what's going on with that?
1: that, that that's exactly the case. Uh, so um, the commitment transaction... Um, varies in size over time as we change our state. So initially, when when we have a single party funding the channel, then the entirety of the funds will revert back to that uh, to that party, and so the commitment transaction will have one output that basically just sends all of the funds back to uh, to the funding party. As soon as the as the counterparty has uh, has ownership of some funds in the channel then we will add a second output, basically one going to uh, endpoint A and one going to endpoint B. And those reflect the settled capacity that, that is owned by the respective party. Um, and then we have a third uh, place where we add uh, new outputs and that's exactly the HTLC. So each HTLC does not belong uh, d- doesn't belong to either A or B, but it belongs it it's somewhere in the middle right if we succeed it belongs to b and if it doesn't succeed it reverts back to a for example and so each of these each of the hlcs has uh, has their own place in the commitment trans- transaction in the form of an output reflecting the value of the hlc and having the output script the resolution script of of the hlcs which spells out, hey, before uh, t- uh, block height X, I I can be claimed by this, and after block uh, block height X, I can uh, I can be reverted back to whoever added me. Uh, and so, having a lot of HTLCs attached to to a channel means that the commitment transaction is really large in in size, and that's also why we have this seemingly random limit on the total number of htlcs in the protocol of 483 maximum htlcs attached to a single transaction because that at that point with 483 htlcs we'd end up with a commitment transaction that is 100 kilobytes in size i think oh that's pretty big <laughs> we're normally talking in terms
0: of bytes right like uh, it might really be expensive. a standard transaction might be it might be like three hundred bytes or something, like a standard one, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's a massive cost as well to to get that confirmed, and uh, uh, it it definitely is a, a really evil attack because not only are you stealing from somebody, but you're also forcing them to pay a considerable amount of money to actually get their channel to settle. I see,
0: and the other point there is that. Because we count fees in terms of sats per byte, and if you've done that fee negotiation between the two nodes up front, let's say you and I, we negotiated that early on, um, then and then one of us goes offline because it's the flood and loot attack, then we, that, that's what you're getting to there. The point that you'd have this huge, huge transaction, but you wouldn't have enough fees to actually uh, close it
1: exactly so, so we we would we would stop adding htlcs before we no longer have any funds to to settle it but it would still be costly in uh, uh, if if we ever end up with a large uh commitment transaction where something like 50 percent of our funds go to fees because it's this huge thing
0: yeah right um, yes. Yeah, so, I mean, this is yeah fr- quite in-depth. I also wanted to just talk a little bit more, maybe if we step back and just talk about Lightning generally, right? Like to kind of the growth of Lightning Network and maybe some of the different models that are out there. So I guess maybe just talking through a couple that exist today in terms of how people use Lightning right, right now today. There's, for example, the Phoenix wallet and Async style where, you know, it's kind of well it is custodial, but there's certain trade-offs there and it's all going through the async node then you've got say wallet of satoshi style which is kind of like they're kind of like a bitcoin lightning bank and the users are just customers of that bank if you will Um, and then you've got kind of some people who are just going full mobile node uh, you know neutrino style Uh, and then maybe the more self-sovereign style where let's say people might run you know those node packages like say my node or noddle or raspi blitz and then have a way to remote in with their blue wallet or with their zap or zeus or spark wallet um so i guess do you have any thoughts on what what models you think will be more popular over time
1: um i i definitely can see the the first and last model uh, quite nicely namely the the sort of uh, mobile wallet that uh, uh, that has somebody on the operational side taking care of of operating uh, your node, but you are still in full control of your funds. So that that would be sort of the Phoenix async mo- uh, model um, where you care for your own node but uh, uh, but sort of the hard parts of uh, uh, of uh, maintaining, connectivity and and maintaining routing tables and and so on and so forth would be would be taken care of by uh by a professional operator and um, that's that's also why uh together with async we came up with the with the trampoline routing uh, mechanism and and some other facets of uh, of this uh, of mechanisms to outsource routing to to online nodes um, because running a, uh, a full Lightning node on, on a mobile phone while well, way easier than than a Bitcoin full node, it, it is still going to use quite a considerable amount of of resources in terms of battery and and, uh, and data to synchronize the view of the network to find paths from you to your to your destination, and you would also need to monitor the blockchain in a reliable way so that uh, that if something happens one of your channels goes down you are there to react um and so having having somebody taking care uh care of those parts namely to to pre-process the network the changes in the network uh, view and and providing access to the wider network through themselves, is is definitely something that that i can see um being being really popular Um, on the other side, I, I can definitely see the, uh, the, uh, people that are more into, uh, uh into operating the node themselves going towards a self-sovereign node style at home where they have a home base, um, that, uh, that their whole, whole family might share and, uh, and, or they might administer it for grow a group of friends. And, uh, and each, uh, each person would then get a, uh, get a node that they can remote into and, and operate from there. And there the issue of, of synchronizing routing nodes and so on to your actual devices that you're running around with, like a mobile phone or your desktop, um, doesn't, doesn't, really, doesn't really matter because you have this uh, 24 hours node online that, uh, that will take care of those details. Um, the fully mobile nodes, I, I think they're, they're interesting to see, and they definitely uh, show up a lot of interesting challenges. Um, but it might just be a bit too much for, for the average user to, to have, to, to have to take care of all of the stuff themselves, right. To, to, to know, to learn about what a channel is, to open a channel, to, uh, curate channels to to make sure that they are well connected to the network. Those are all details that I would like to hide as much as possible from the end user because they're if, while important for uh, for your uh, performance and your uh, your ability to pay, they are also hard concepts that I, for example, would not want to try to explain to my parents
0: <laughs> of course of course and obviously your focus is very deep technical protocol level but do you have any thoughts on what is needed in terms of making lightning more accessible to that end user is it you know better ways to remote in to your home node or do you have any ideas around that or what you would like to see
1: I, I think at least from the protocol side of uh, things, we can do we we have still a lot we can do to make uh, to make all of this more transparent to the user and and enable enable non tech savvy people to take uh, uh, to take care of a node themselves. Um, so I wouldn't I. I I don't know what, what the big picture is at the end, but I do know that we can certainly abstract away and hide some of the details uh, in the protocol itself to make it more accessible and make it more, more usable to, to end users. As for, uh, for the nice UI and user experience um, that, uh, that we don't have yet, think that will crystallize itself out in 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 the cup in the coming months and we will see some really good looking uh things from from wallet developers. Now obviously I'm not I'm not a very graphical person so I can't tell you what that's going to look like but I'm confident that uh, uh that there are uh people out there that have a really good idea on what what this could look like and I'm looking forward to seeing it myself.
0: Right, and I think there's a there's a whole bunch of different models, right? Because, you know, people who just want an easy something to just get started, something like Phoenix might be a good one for them, and then, you know, if you're really more technical, then obviously you can go and do the full set up your own, C Lightning and Spark or set up LND and Zap or, or whatever you like. Um, so I guess it's, it's just kind of uh, building out better options to make it easy for people even if we know not everyone's going to be capable to do the full self-sovereign style as we
1: would like. Uh- Absolutely yeah it's uh, it's one of my pet peeves that I have with the Bitcoin community is that that we have a tendency to to jump right to the perfect solution and sort of shame people that do not see this perfect solution right away. And so this this shaming of of newcomers into, uh, into believing that there is this huge amount of literature they have to go through before even touching the first the, the, their bitcoins the first time, um, that that can be really that can be a huge barrier to entry. And so I think what we need to have is a wide range of uh, of utilities that um, that as the user grows in its uh, in its own understanding of Bitcoin. He can uh, he can uh, upgrade or downgrade accordingly to 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 reflect his own understanding of uh, of the system itself. We shouldn't we shouldn't uh, always mandate that uh, that only the most secure solution is the only one that that is is to be used. Um, I, I think that there, that there are trade offs uh, uh, when it, when it comes to user friendliness and and privacy and security. And we have to accept that some people might not care so much about the perfect setup. They might be okay with a decent one.
0: Yeah, that's a very good comment there. Um, Also, just wanted to talk about trampoline routing. So you mentioned this earlier as well. I know the Async guys are keen on this idea, uh, though I know that there there has also been some discussion on, uh, I think this is on GitHub uh from some other lightning developers who said well i i see a privacy potentially an issue there because maybe there might not be enough people who run trampoline routers and therefore there's a privacy concern there that you know all those mobile users will be doxing their privacy to these uh, uh trampoline routers uh do you have any thoughts on that or where are you placed on that idea um yeah do you have any thoughts sir
1: yeah so uh Basically, just to just to reiterate, trampoline routing is a mechanism for us, for a mobile wallet, for example, or a resource-constrained wallet, um, to, to contact somebody in, uh, in the network that offers this trampoline service and, uh, and forwarding a payment to that trampoline node. And when the trampoline node unpacks the routing onion, it will see, oh, uh, I'm not, I'm not the destination, and I should forward it to somebody. But instead of telling me exactly whom I have to forward it to, it is telling me the final destination of the payment. So um, let's say I, I want, I am a mobile phone, and and I know very, li- uh, I have a very limited knowledge of my surroundings in the network, but I know that you Stefan are a trampoline node that, uh, then I can, uh, I can, when I want to try rusty, for example, I can look in my vicinity to see if I have a trampoline node, I can build a, uh, build a uh, payment to you with instructions to, to forward it to rusty, whom I don't know how to reach. Um, and, and then I send this payment and so, and so when you unpack your onion, you just received it like usual you, you you don't know exactly who I am because I'm still onion routing to you um, uh, you unpack this uh, this onion and now see okay uh, Christian uh, this this somebody who has who has sent me this payment has left me 100 satoshi's in extra fees uh, and I'm supposed to uh, to send one dollar to rusty um, and now I have 100 satoshi's as a budget to Get these uh, uh, get this to Rusty, and so I basically outsourced my route finding to you. Um, now, what have you seen f- uh, from this payment? You've obviously seen the uh, that that Rusty is the destination and that he should receive one dollar worth of Bitcoin, um, but you still don't know me, um, and we can go one step further and say, hey, instead of uh, instead of having this one trampoline hop, we can uh, also chain multiple of them. So instead of telling you to go to uh, to Rusty, um, I would tell you to go to somebody else who also happens to be a trampoline, and then he can forward it to uh, to to Rusty. And so the uh, we we can expand on this uh, uh, on this concept and make it an onion routed payment inside of individual onion routed hops um, and so what does the uh, what does the node learn about the uh, the payment he is forwarding well if we do the only this one trampoline hop um, then you might guess that i'm somewhere in your vicinity network wise um, and you learn that rusty is the destination if we do this multiple uh, trampoline hops then you will, uh, you will learn that, well, somebody has sent you a payment. Big surprise, that's what you always knew. Um, <laughs> you can no longer say that, it's, uh, uh, that, that I'm in your vicinity, I, the original sender, because, well, you might have gotten it from some other trampoline node. And you can also not know whether you're, uh, the next trampoline you're, uh, you're supposed to send to is the destination or whether that's a, an intermediate trampoline as well. And so we can claw back some of the privacy uh, primitives that we have uh, in, in pure onion routing that is source-based routing um, inside of the trampoline routing. Uh, but it does alleviate the um, the issue of, uh, of the sender having to know, having a good picture of the network topology in order to send a payment first and so I, I think we we can we can make a good case for this not being much worse uh, but much more reliable than uh than uh, than what we have before because we have also a couple of improvements that come alongside with trampoline routing because for example what uh, what trampoline routing allows you is i can Let's go back to the initial example of me sending to you, you being the trampoline and then and then uh, sending to Rusty. It means that um, once you get the instruction to send to the final destination, you can retry uh, yourself instead of having to tell me, hey, this didn't work, please try something else. You c- we can do in-network retries which is really cool especially for mobile phones that might have a flaky connection or might be slow we can outsource retrying multiple attempts to the network itself without having to to be uh, to be in the uh, in the active path ourselves basically fascinating so
0: i guess if i had to summarize some of your thinking there it's kind of like think through a little bit more clearly about exactly what is your uh who are you doxing and to what 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 are you doxing to who rather and if you haven't doxed any personal information about yourself to me well then really what's the privacy loss there i guess that's kind of the way to think of that uh and so it might maybe it would become the case that you know lots of the let's let's call them the hardcore bitcoin lightning people they might Run trampoline routing boxes in a similar way to some hardcore people run electrum public servers just to benefit you know people on the network
1: absolutely I mean uh it it's not just because of the kindness of your heart that you're running trampoline nodes. One thing that uh, um, that I mentioned before is basically that you you get you get rather a lot of fees in order for you to to be able to find a route so the sender cannot estimate how much it's going to cost to reach destination, so they are uh, uh, they are basically incentivized to overpay the uh, the trampoline node to find a route for them, and so this difference then goes to the trampoline r- uh, node, and so uh, running a trampoline node can be really really um, lucrative as well. Yeah, that's fascinating. I didn't think about that.
0: That's a good point. And so
1: in some ways,
0: it's actually even more incentive to do it than, say, running an Electrum public server, because people don't pay Electrum public servers right now. So it's actually even better in that sense.
1: Yeah. And it's it's not really hard to implement. We, we can we can implement trampoline routing uh, as a plugin right now, basically.
0: Yeah, that's very fascinating. It's a new way of thinking about it. Yeah. Um, Great. Uh, One other thing I was interested to touch on is people talk about privacy attacks on lightning and so on. And so one of them is talking about channel probing. And so the idea is that uh, maybe you could explain it better than me, but my understanding is people construct almost like a false onion that they know cannot go through uh, and then try to figure out based on that, And they sort of play, you know, price is right or whatever. And they might try, okay, try 800 sats, try $8 and then figure it out based on, okay, I know roughly this is how much is available in that channel. Um, But I guess my question is more just like, people talk about some of this is like, okay, that's, you know, that's violating the privacy principles of lightning but I, I wonder how bad is that really like what's the actual severity or is it just losing some small amount of privacy in a small way that doesn't really stop the network growing do you have any reflections on that
1: uh, yeah i i do because uh, probing was was one of my babies basically and uh um i i really like probing the network to be honest i i come from a background that is mostly measurements and and Probing, probing the Bitcoin network, and so I was really happy when I when I found a way to to probe the Lightning network and see how how well it works and how uh, if if we if we can detect some uh, some failures inside of the network. Um, and so you're right that that probing basically boils down to attempting a payment that we know will never succeed because we gave it uh, a payment hash that doesn't correspond to anything that the recipient. Uh, knows. So um, what we can do is basically, I compute a route to uh, whichever node I'm trying to probe. Um, I will construct an onion and then send out an HTLC that cannot possibly be claimed by the recipient. And depending on the error message that comes back, whether the destination says, "Hey, uh, I don't know what you're talking about," or some intermediate node saying, "Oh, insufficient capacity," we can we can determine. Where how far we got with the edge with this uh, probe, and um, and what kind of error happened at the uh, at the point where it failed, and so we can learn something about the network, um, uh, and how it how it operates in the real world, and that's invaluable information. For example, uh, we uh, we measured how many how probable a stuck payment is something that has been has been dreaded for a long time. And it turns out that that stock payments are really, really uh, really rare. Um, They happen in 0.18% of cases for payments. Um, It's also really useful to sort of estimate the the capacity that we have available for for sending payments to a destination. Uh, And that's something that we've done for the pre-split analysis, for example. Where we said, okay, uh, anything below 10,000 satoshis has a reasonable chance of success. Um, anything above might might be tricky. So we split before even trying anything. We split uh, right at the start uh, into smaller chunks. Uh, so so those are all upsides for for pros. But I definitely do see that there is a downside for for probing. And that is that we leak some privacy. Now, what privacy do we actually leak? Um, It's basically the channel capacities. And why are channel capacities uh, dangerous to be known publicly? Well, that it it could enable you to trace a payment through multiple hops. So let's say, for example, we we have channels A, B, and C that are part of a route. And along these three channels, we detect a change in capacity of 13 Satoshis. Um, Now 13 Satoshis is quite a specific number and the probability of that all belonging to the same payment is quite high. But for us to make this, this, collate this information into into reconstructing payments based solely on observing capacity changes, we also need to make sure that, uh, that our observations are relatively close together because if an intermediate payment comes through that might obscure our signal that allows us to collate the uh, the payment and so that's where uh, where i think that mpp payments can actually hugely increase privacy simply by providing enough noise to make this collating of multiple observations really hard because Channel balances now change all the time. You cannot have a channel that that is that is constant for hours and hours, and then suddenly a payment goes through, and then you can measure it. Instead, you have you have multiple payments going over a channel in different combinations, and the balances of those uh, of those changes um, cannot be collated into into a, an individual payment anymore. And That then is combined with efforts like uh, Rene Pickard's just-in-time rebalancing where you obscure your current balance by rebalancing on the fly while while you are holding onto an HTLC. And that can then pretend to be a larger channel than it actually is simply because we rebalance our channel on the fly. And so I think probing can be really useful when it comes to, uh, to fi- measuring the performance metrics for the Lightning Network, it could potentially be a privacy issue, but uh, at the timeframes that we're talking uh, today, it's really improbable to, fi- uh, to, to be able to trace a payment through multiple channels.
0: Yeah, I suppose, especially with MPP, and especially once you add these other, all these different layers and things into it, it yeah, it seems a bit uh, like a a very minimal, quite quite a low risk, I guess. but yeah, look, uh, Christian, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, we've almost gone two hours at this point. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> but I've definitely learned a lot, and I'm sure SLP listeners will certainly appreciate uh, being able to learn from you today. Uh, Christian, just for any listeners who want to find you online, where can they find you?
1: I'm uh, at C Decker on uh, GitHub and at Snike S-N-Y-K-E, on Twitter. Fantastic.
0: Well, I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thank you for joining me.
1: Thank you so much pleasure as always and uh, keep on doing the good work
0: make sure you share the episode with anyone who's interested in what's coming up with lightning and you can find the show notes and the transcript at stefanlevera.com 200 for this episode thanks and i'll see you in the citadels